I'm going to start in one of my favorite verses. That's uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. There is so much that we can understand about our Father God by understanding how he created the world. What his purpose was for making mankind and that which the Bible reveals to us along this line. If you don't understand the beginnings, if you don't understand the state of mankind or the man that God made, Adam and Eve, in the beginning and what his purpose was for us, then there's no way that you can understand and walk in his purpose today. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 tells us that after God had made all the things pertaining to the earth, He revealed his plan for man. Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We usually think of physical appearance by those words, but it's, that's not what it means. Or it's not the only thing that it means. He's talking about making man an exact duplicate and copy of himself. Let us make man in our own image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Genesis one twenty six is an eternal declaration of God's purpose for man. There's only one thing that the Bible ever states as a reason for why God made man, and that is for him to have authority on the earth. That's it. God didn't make man because he was lonely. He's God. He can't be lonely. I'm sure there were some things that God was looking forward to as far as fellowship with man is concerned because he made man in his own image. I used to say it this way. I used to say that God made man as close to himself as he could, as close to an exact duplicate of himself as he could. Well, God can do everything, can he? So an exact duplicate as close as he could means an exact duplicate in kind. God operated in the law of Genesis in the creation of man, everything produces after its own kind. That includes God. And he, com- he created man for the sole purpose of man having authority on the earth. Now, we know that's not how it shook out. We know that man fell in the Garden of Eden and sin and death, and the law of sin and death began to operate in the world. But that didn't change God. Man falling didn't change God at all. God can't change. So God's purpose before the fall is God's purpose after the fall. God's purpose for man on the earth was the same after the fall as it was before the fall. And this clearly tells us what it was before the fall. Let man have dominion. Let man have dominion on the earth. Now I want you to look with me over to Isaiah chapter 55. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. It says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to God, return unto God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, notice this connects to verse 7 where he's talking about the wicked. Let the wicked forsake their way and their thoughts. So God is saying that his thoughts are higher 
than earthly thoughts. His thoughts are higher than unsaved man can think. And his ways are greater than the unsaved man can operate in. But what if he's talking about something beyond just distance? As high as the heavens are above the earth. What if he means something more than just distance? Here's what I mean by that. I believe that the angels singing in heaven is greater than anything anybody can produce here on the earth. Don't you? Paul talked about heaven being a place that was beyond description. Paul said when he was caught up into the third heaven, which would be the throne room of God, he said, I saw and heard things that I can't describe. King James translates it as not lawful to utter, but that's not what the words really mean. The words really mean that he didn't have a description for us. There's no way he could use human language to describe what he saw and experienced in heaven. I think things are better in heaven just because God's there and sin's not. So what if that's what this means? For my ways are higher than your ways. What if he's talking about a quality of life? And not just how high the, earth, how high the heavens are above the earth. Well, how are we going to attain to that? Notice he keeps speaking. We'll keep reading along the lines of what he's talking about. Again, verse 9, for my, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow comes from heaven and returns not there, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. That means without fruit, without being fruitful. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now, when God's talking about his ways being higher than our ways, his thoughts being higher than our thoughts, when he's talking about their greater, his ways and thoughts are greater than ours, just like heaven is high above the earth. If he's talking about a quality of life, If he's talking about something that exists in heaven that we don't experience here on the earth, which we could plug into a lot of things because the law of sin and death is still here, then how is he going to bring us to his ways? How is he going to bring us to his thoughts? I think the reason that that, uh, God used heaven as an example over earth concerning these things is because he wants us to live in the quality of heaven here. Jesus told his disciples after he commissioned them and uh, delegated authority to them over sickness and disease, he told his disciples to go preach the kingdom of God. He said, go heal the sick in the cities that will receive you and tell them the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. Well, we know the kingdom of God is now. When Jesus was here on the earth before he had gone to the cross to pay the price for mankind and his sins, And the law of sin and death. The kingdom of God was close to coming. But we know now that we've been translated into the kingdom of God's dear son, Jesus. That would have to mean the kingdom is now, isn't it? See, for us to pray the Lord's prayer, thy thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That doesn't fit for us. 
Now, the part about God's will being done on the earth, just as it is in heaven, that fits for us. But the kingdom has come. It's here. We're living in it. And notice that every time the Bible speaks of something related to God and God reaching out to us, it always comes back to the word. It always comes back to the word of God. Always. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to start reading in verse 27. All things are delivered unto me of my father. And no man knoweth the son but the father. Neither knoweth any man the father save or except the son. And he to whomsoever the son will reveal him. Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just as a side note concerning these scriptures, if the thing you're trying to do is hard, it's not God. If the thing you're trying to make happen in your life and experience in your life is difficult. It's not God. I remember John Osteen saying years ago, this was many years ago, um, many years earlier. Well, what am I trying to say? This was a long, this took place many years before he died. He was complaining to God about all the demands on his time. He's pastoring a big church. He's doing some traveling ministry and so forth. He's trying to obey God and get, reach as many people as he could and influence as many people for God as he possibly could. And so he got in prayer one time and he was saying, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do all this. And he went on a little bit more and complained about all he had to do and the, the time pressures he was under and the financial pressure he was under. And finally the Lord spoke to him in these verses. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He said, the things that are weighing you down are your idea, not mine. Boy, that stuck with me. I've tried to live by that. If what we do is difficult, that that doesn't mean it's not going to take effort on our part. Doing the will of God takes effort on our part. But if it's difficult, if it's weighing us down, chances are we've got ourselves mixed in there instead of God. But did you notice what Jesus said is the key to living at peace, not burdened down? being yoked together with him. Did you notice what the key was? He said, learn of me. Learn of me. How are we going to learn of him? There's only one way you can, and that's through the word. The only way to fellowship with God is through his word. The only way to fellowship with God and operate according to his peace and find his purpose is through the word. That's it, folks. Now, the Bible makes some statements to us that are, well, for some, I guess they're too hard to accept. For example, the Bible says God is that we are complete in him. We are complete in him. Through the work of Jesus, we're complete in him. Now, remember, Jesus came to undo what the devil did through the fall of man. To destroy 
that world system that we were subject to, spiritual kingdom that we were subject to, and restore us back to what we originally were. Now, the reality is very simply this, folks. That's already done. If the Bible is true, then the work is finished. And it seems to me that so many of us, so many Christians, are trying to make that work come to pass. And not only can you not do that, you're wasting your time trying. Because it's already been done by Jesus. I'm going to read to you Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. It says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now, if you backed up a few verses, you'd find out he's talking about people imposing religious uh, days, observances of days and holidays and that type of thing. Jesus, or Paul rather, is telling us by the Holy Ghost that this is one of the means of deception. And remember in the last days, one of the key ingredients Jesus said, characteristics of the last days that Jesus identified is deception. A lot of people get hung up in things that they think they're doing for God and they're deceived and burdened down because those things have already been fulfilled. Now, every year around Christmas time, we have some Certain Christians, well-meaning, I suppose, but this just tries. To, but the ones that just try to ruin Christmas for everybody, they'll tell you how paganism brought about Christmas trees and so forth. Who cares? I like my Christmas tree. I don't care if it represents paganism to some idiot. Don't have one if you don't want one, but don't take mine away. Well, that may be an extreme example, but that's what Paul is talking about and referring to things there. He goes on. He says in verse 9, For in him, meaning Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, is he talking about when Jesus was here on the earth or is he talking about now? For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Bible talks about the church being the body of Christ here on the earth. Jesus certainly delegated his authority here on the earth to mankind. So Paul is trying to tell us that the church is the thing that has the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. We're his body here on the earth. We're the only way Jesus can operate here on the earth. Because he's not here. I think that's the reason he... Specifically identified, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, is what he told his disciples when he was resurrected. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. Because the authority is given to me in heaven and earth, you go and do the work of God here on the earth. Now, why did he tell us to do that? Because he didn't stay here on the earth. See, folks, the thing that gives man authority here on the earth is his body. And you know as well as I do, when you lose your body, you have to leave the planet. That's the way it works. But if that's the way it works, that's the way it works for Jesus. He doesn't have a flesh and bone body anymore, or flesh and blood body. He's got a flesh and bone body, but not flesh and blood. 
And the Bible tells, tells us several times in the Old Testament and the New that the life is in the blood. Jesus doesn't have blood flowing through his body anymore. It was poured out for you and me. So he has no authority here on the earth or no occasion to exercise the authority that he has been given over the earth except through you and me. If you don't move, he can't move. If you don't do, he can't do. Now, I know that's blasphemous to some people, the very idea that God can't do something. But there's a lot of things God can't do. God can't break his word. And his word says the authority that he has on the earth has been given to you and me. So here where he says, for in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Notice what he tells us about us because of that. Verse 10. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You are complete in him. You are complete in him. Now, to be complete, you can't be lacking anything. To be complete, there has to be nothing missing. The concept of completeness can't be understood if there's something missing or something lacking in any way whatsoever. Paul, by the Holy Ghost, said, you are complete in him. You are complete in him. Now, in the Old Testament, what we just read over in Isaiah 55, Isaiah is inspired by the Holy Ghost, speaking on behalf of God, to say, my word is the power of God. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And then he starts talking about, so shall my word be. It comes from heaven. It comes from heaven to, to accomplish a specific thing, and it always accomplishes what God sent it to do. That means healing scriptures always accomplish healing in our bodies. That means abundant scriptures always produce abundance in our lives. They always work according to God. They always work. Under the New Covenant, in the New Testament, Paul said it this way. In Romans 1.16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the, it is the power of God unto salvation. Now, that word salvation is an all-inclusive term. It means to rescue and deliver, to make safe, to make sound, and to heal. So Paul told us the same thing that Isaiah told us, just in a different way. Paul said, the word of God is the power of God. Isaiah said, God's given us the word. It came from heaven, and it accomplishes what it's supposed to do. Well, if it didn't have power in it, then it couldn't be effective and accomplish what God wanted it to do. And then there are scriptures like 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. It said, For whatsoever, literally whomsoever, is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now that's a strange scripture. Because it doesn't say faith brings the victory. It says faith is the victory. See, when John is inspired by the Holy Ghost to write this, he's not saying your faith will bring about what God wants. He's saying your faith is the victory over the world now. See, we always think of end results. We always think of faith bringing something to us that God's word tells us he wants us to have or has done for us. But that's not what it says. 
Now, that doesn't mean that principle is untrue. That is certainly the way that faith works. But as far as God is concerned, as far as Holy Ghost, who inspired John to write these words, he said, your victory begins when you believe. Your victory doesn't bring something to pass alone. Your victory is believing God's word to begin with. And again, in my thinking, it goes back to the quality of existence God wants us to have. The quality of life God wants us to live. The quality of eternal life. Eternal life is not just longevity, which begins when, we go, when Jesus comes back for us and we go to heaven. Eternal life is a quality of life. Paul wrote to the Corinthians... And he kind of bemoaned the fact that they were walking as mere men. Think about that. They were walking as mere men. Now, what he meant by that, of course, is that they were walking just like people in the world operate. They were saved, spirit-filled. I guess we could call them casual Christians. And Paul bemoaned the fact that they were walking on such a low level that he identifies them as mere men. But then that has to, has to mean, if the Holy Ghost inspired those words, that has to mean God doesn't want us to be mere men. Jesus has made us complete in him. Complete in Jesus is not acting as a mere man. He wants us to be supermen in the context of super, the supernatural realm. John Lake wrote in his memoirs. Actually, I think this was a a transcript of a sermon that he preached many years ago. He said that in the work that they were doing in South Africa, in the establishing of the over 500 churches that they set in motion during those days, the move of God that he had, which was like reading the book of Acts, he said that the Holy Ghost came upon a certain young girl in such a way that it was, well, he said it was astounding. His mother, the girl's mother and father, her parents were musicians. But this young girl really wasn't. She had learned a little bit of playing the piano from her mom and that kind of thing, but otherwise it was not something she was familiar with or skilled at in any way. But John Lake said that when the Holy Ghost would come on her, she'd go to the piano And play and sing things that was like the voice of angels. Sounds of heaven. And there were, uh, there was a certain time a a young, uh, a lady, I don't know how young she was. Her name was Clara Butts. And apparently, and you can look her up if if you want to, if you're interested. She was a um, concert singer. And she was apparently some kind of huge celebrity of that day. Well, she had heard of this young girl. It was such a marvelous thing that was happening. And when the young girl would play, her her father would stand on one side and transcribe the words that, that she was singing. Her mother would stand on the other side and watch her hands on the piano and try to take note of the songs that she was, that were pouring out of her. Well, this concert singer lady didn't know anything about how the word, how the work of the Holy Ghost operated or what God did or how. 
So she heard of this uh, young girl, and she contacted Lake, went to one of his um, services. And she talked to him, and she said, I've heard that there's a young lady that sings the songs of heaven. He said, yeah, that's right. And she said, I would love to meet her. So Lake took her to the home of this young lady and the parents. And she said, not knowing how these things work, she said, I want to hear it now. Well, you can't dictate to God when it's going to work, you know. And, of course, Lake knew that and the the other family knew that as well. But they said, well, let's pray. We don't control it, but we'll pray and ask the Lord. And if he does it, he does it. So they prayed, waited for some period of time, and then the Holy Ghost came on this young girl. And after singing whatever the Lord gave her and playing it on the piano, this concert singer, famous lady, said something to this effect. She said, that's the song I hear inside of me sometimes. But I've never been able to get to it. I've never been able to sing it. I've never been able to play it. She said, this truly is a note from heaven. When I talk about the quality of life or the difference between heaven and earth that Jesus, uh, that uh, Isaiah identified was as far above in quality, I believe, as the heavens are high above the earth. I believe that's true in every area. I believe there's a quality of life that's available for us. A quality of life. A quality of complete victory over the devil and his works here in the earth that's available to us. Turn with me over to John chapter 8. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read through the whole thing but the the whole chapter is really tied together it contains a lot of things that jesus said that were difficult for the people to hear and the john's the only gospel writer that gives us this information i've said this over and over again and, and forgive me for repeating this but it helps me understand a lot of things that i wouldn't understand or didn't used to understand otherwise john wrote his gospel some 60 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. The other three gospels are well were well known. They were circulated widely throughout the Christian world. John knew everything Matthew said, he knew everything that Mark said, and he knew everything that Luke had written. But apparently, we needed what John had to say as an eyewitness to all these things to give us a complete picture. Otherwise I can't imagine why the Holy Ghost would have inspired him to write. And John tells us a lot of things that the other three don't. It's almost like he comes behind and and fills in the blanks. And this chapter is one of those places. Another is John chapter 14, 15, and 16, which tells us about the the last night, the last supper that Jesus uh, experienced and ate with his disciples. But this chapter, by and large, is talking about, is Jesus talking about being one with the Father? He's talking about relationship. He's talking about being one with with the Father, just like we are one with the Father through Him. 
Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 again, a prayer that the other gospel writers don't give us or inform us of. But Jesus prayed that we would be one with the Father just like he's one with the Father. Not a step down. Not one step further away. But like he is one with the Father. In other words, this quality of life that we're talking about that's a part of heaven and available, it seems to us here on the earth, was the same quality of life that Jesus experienced and operated in when he was here. And I think we'd all have to agree that Jesus demonstrated complete victory over the devil and all of his works. Jesus lived in such a way that he didn't have to be concerned about what was coming down the road. He didn't wake up in the morning and say, well, I hope we can get through another day. And it didn't matter if extreme cases and conditions of sickness faced him. It didn't matter if people wanting to kill him was going to face him that day. It didn't matter what was coming. It did not matter what the devil tried to throw at him because he was one with the Father. Now, I understand that some of these things are difficult for us to accept. And I further understand that the reason that most Christians live on a low level as mere men, maybe as Paul said, is because of the difficulty to accept this. The difficulty in accepting this makes all the difference in whether or not you and I are going to live up to who we've been created to be. Jesus did not recreate us through the new birth in the image of God, impart righteousness into our being, change us into righteous men and women, for us to go through life saying, well, I wonder what we're supposed to do now. I'd like to believe that we are who the Bible says we are, but man, that's just tough. And those who have stepped over into these, this quality of life, I'll include John Lake as one of those. we look at as aberrations. Modern man looks at people that did those things in the name of Jesus and on the behalf of God as almost freaks, spiritual freaks. We consider that to be a good thing. But it's as if we see what they did and think, well, he had something extra. He had something more than what we have. His experience with God was, was different than our experience from God, with God. And folks, that's impossible. If God gave him or anybody like him a greater experience in himself, a different salvation than what we have, then God is a respecter of persons, which makes the Bible a lie. So this quality of life is what Jesus is talking about. <clears throat> When he speaks of being one with the father. Verse 27. We'll pick up in the middle of the story. They understood not that Jesus spake to them of the father. Then said Jesus unto them. When you have lifted up the son of man. Then shall you know that I am he. Do you see the word he is in italics? 
That means the translators added it to help us understand. <clears throat> Excuse me. The translators are helping us understand what they thought. But in this case, they're not helping us understand what Jesus said. So let me read this again without the he. Then said Jesus unto them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then shall you know that I am. This is the clearest place in all of the gospels where Jesus identifies who he is. He says, I am. Remember, that's what God told Moses his name was. That's what God told Moses, the name that God told Moses to take to Pharaoh when he said, go let my people go. I am that I am. Jesus is saying, being one with the Father makes him I am. That's going to get him in trouble at the end of this, this chapter. But he continues to teach. He said, then shall you know that I am and that I do nothing of myself. But as the Father has taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. I want you to see that verse. As he spoke these words, many believed on him. Now, what do they believe him? What do they believe him about? What do they believe on him for? They believed that he was I am. In other words, it's telling us that there were a lot of people in this crowd that accepted that Jesus was the Messiah and they believed on him. Which means when salvation comes through Jesus' resurrection, they're in. They're ready to receive. Not that they knew that was coming, but it puts them in position as far as God's concerned to bestow eternal life upon them. So as he spoke these words, verse 30 again, as he spoke these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. So apparently this was a majority Jewish crowd. Then said Jesus to those Jews who believed on him. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Now, first thing out of the gate here, I want you to see that Jesus showed a difference between believers and disciples. Since we know that the believers were believing in connection with salvation, then we would have to understand that Jesus made a distinction that fits in our day between saved and disciples. We got a lot of the church world that's saved. Well, everybody in the church world, I guess, is saved. I wonder how many of them are disciples. Notice what makes the difference between the two classes. The attitude toward the word. Then said Jesus unto those those Jews who believed on him. If you continue in my word. Then are you my disciples. Verse 32 he continues. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. 
Now notice he's talking about an, uh, a measure of truth that the casual Christian doesn't get. He's talking about a measure of truth that comes only from continuing in the word. He's talking about a quality of life that's, av- that's available for those who go beyond just the remission of sins to continue in the word. Can you see that? If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Notice the ones who are going to be free in life. Not the believers. Not the casual Christians. But those who pursue the word. If you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him and said, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou that you shall be made free? Then Jesus starts talking about who really is Abraham's seed. Verse 37, he said, I know that you are Abraham's seed, physical descendants in other words. But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father and you do that which you have seen with your father. Then they answered and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd do the works of Abraham. Now, what's Abraham known for? Faith. Folks, faith is always the victory. Doesn't just bring victory. It is the victory. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 17. Father, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. It all comes back to the word. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. And they said unto him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Then Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Somewhere along the line, these guys should try to understand not to argue with Jesus. I mean, every time they think they've got an answer, Jesus said, well, if that were true, then this. Yeah, but, well, if that were true, then this. So he winds up calling them children of the devil. You're of your father, the devil. Now, folks, who is he talking to? The previous scripture said he talked to the Jews that believed on him. So you've got believers, people that the Bible says have chosen to believe what he said about being one with the Father, about being the Messiah, that come to the place where they argue for their own positions, their own purposes, to stick with what they've got. We're willing to believe. Okay, Jesus, we'll say that you're the I am. We'll say that you're the Messiah. But we don't want to change the way we're operating. We don't want to change our thinking. We don't want to change what we do. We want to stick with the way the world does things. 
Remember, Jesus said, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. They're saying, we don't want to change our thoughts or our ways. Because, see, folks, if you continue in the word, it'll change your thoughts. And it'll change your ways. If you choose to be a disciple and follow through like Jesus said, it will change you. And a lot of people would rather stick with what they've got. A lot of Christians would rather stick with what they've got. Are they believers? Yeah. Does heaven belong to them? Yeah. Are they disciples? No, not so much. You remember what Jesus told the church in Laodicea? Revelation chapter 3, I think it is. He said to the, to the Christians that were there in that church, he said, I wish that you were either hot or cold. Apparently God can deal with hot or cold. He said, but you're lukewarm. Not worth anything. Lukewarm water doesn't quench your thirst. It doesn't even feel good in your mouth. So Jesus said in a spiritual context, because you're lukewarm, I'll have to spew you out of my mouth. <coughs> Does that mean they're not saved? No. It means they won't change. Lukewarm Christians won't change. And they don't want to be confronted with anything that might cause or demand a change. So it's just so much easier for a lukewarm Christian to stay away from the word. To repeat what they've heard other people say. Not to expect much of God and certainly not to expect much of themselves. Jesus said, I'd rather have you cold than that. I wonder how much of the church world lives there. I'm guessing it's a bigger number than I'd like to consider. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> Verse 10, Paul said, finally, my brethren, he's wrapping up the letter that he's written to them. And he's saving some of the most important information for last. So he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, I want you to notice that he's saying that in such a way that causes us to understand that strength or weakness is a choice. If it was something that was dealt by God apart from us. Apart from any effort on our part. Then Paul would have said. You strong ones be strong for everybody. And the weak ones hang on to them. But he doesn't. He says be strong in the Lord. And the power of his might. Spiritual strength is a choice. It's available for everybody. You be the judge on how many people take advantage of it. He tells them how to do it. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the treachery or trickery of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. Wherefore, because this is true, because you have a real enemy out there. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. William's translation says, withstand when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, you know as well as I do, you can't just say, okay, in the name of Jesus, I take unto myself the armor of God. Anybody that tries to do that is about to get whacked. (laughs) Because the devil wants to discourage you. He wants to keep you in the dark about this. How do you take upon yourself truth? How do you take upon yourself righteousness? How do you take upon yourself the helmet of salvation or the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God? How do you do any of that stuff? It all comes through one and only one way, and that's knowledge. Remember, Peter wrote to the church. He said, grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God, the father and Jesus, his son, through the knowledge. See, the difference between the strong Christian and the weak Christian is not the measure of salvation that they have, but rather the measure of the knowledge that they've gained. The measure of the knowledge that they've gained. The more you know about righteousness, the more you'll walk in it. The more you know about what salvation has accomplished for you, the more you'll walk in that. It's all about knowledge. And see, knowledge is what casual Christians resist. Because knowledge will change you. Knowledge that comes with the word, which is the knowledge that triggers these blessings of God. I want you to notice what Paul uses as an example In all probability, he writes this while he's under house arrest in Rome. The Bible tells us about that house arrest, that there were a group of soldiers that were with him almost constantly. At one time on his journey to Rome, they were chained to him or tied to him, so he couldn't get away. Not that he tried. But in Rome, he was under house arrest, and so there was a constant guard. So he has a Roman soldier to look at that is the the basis of the foundation for the spiritual armor, the armor of God that he identifies with the Ephesians. Now, what was the purpose of this armor for the Roman soldier? Well, the Roman soldier had only one purpose, and that is to destroy the the enemies of Rome. And even though many of these pieces of the armor that are identified are defensive, In nature, 
The purpose for being covered by that armor was to free the soldier up to kill the enemies of Rome. And that's what Paul uses for an example. What does that mean? Well, I believe it means what the Bible says about Jesus. Jesus was made manifest to destroy the works of the devil. I believe the armor of God is given unto us to destroy the works of the devil in our lives. And remember what the Bible says. The Bible says we're complete in him. Here's an illustration. It might not be a good one, but hopefully you'll see the point. We live in a place where the weather is almost perfect almost all the time. I love the weather of the place that we live. But you know as well as I do that there's a couple of weeks in the summer that gets oppressively hot. Now, oppressively hot for the rest of the country probably just means a nice day. (laughs) But for us, it's brutal because we never have that kind of weather much. Well, my house, just like your house, has central air conditioning. And so for those few weeks out of the year, there is the capacity for our homes to change the temperature in our house. Now, our house is set up in such a way that the um, air conditioner has a lot better effect, a lot quicker effect on the downstairs than it does the upstairs. Now, I can make my air conditioning system work better or more efficient or more powerfully if I change the compressor when it needs to be changed. There are things that you can do as far as maintenance and so forth that enhance the cooling capability of the air conditioner. Now, if you turn the air conditioner on, downstairs gets cool almost instantly. Upstairs, it takes a little longer. Now, there's no guarantee, there's no assurance, there's no requirement for me as a homeowner to ever use my air conditioner. And I think spiritually what happens is a lot of people don't use that which they've been made complete in Christ with and complain about how hot it is here on the earth. I'm not talking global warming. That's a whole different (laughs) idiot position. But they complain about their circumstances here on the earth when they have the ability to have the power given by God to make a change. Now, if you go upstairs, if you're upstairs when the air conditioner comes on, you can lay there and sweat and think this thing doesn't work at all. But if you go downstairs, you find out it works real good. And so there may be delays, there may be circumstances, there may be issues involved in the upstairs that make you wonder if this thing even works. But stick with it, and eventually it'll cool the whole house. I think there's a spiritual application there. Because remember, the Bible says again, it's 1 John 5, 4, that faith is the victory which overcomes the world. It doesn't just bring victory. It is the victory. Same thing's true where this Ephesians 6 passage is concerned. Being strong in the Lord is a choice. And it may not look like you gain strength overnight. But if you stick with it, it'll see you through. You know, faith is kind of a paradox. Because as John tells us by the Holy Ghost, 
as soon as we believe the truth, as soon as we choose to accept God's word as the truth and live by it, which is what being strong in the Lord really comes down to, once you make that determination, once you make that choice, it puts you in position to take hold of everything Jesus did for us. But there's no requirement for you to do it. I'm talking to Christians. There's no requirement for anybody to ever operate in faith beyond just making Jesus their Lord and Savior. None whatsoever. There's no assurance. There's no guarantee that someone will take hold of it. Or if they ever do take hold of it, it will stick to it until they see the results. It's all subjective. It's all subject to your choice and your will. The thing that makes faith a paradox in my thinking is because if you make the choice, if you decide, I want to have what the Bible says that Jesus provided. I want to have every part of it. I don't, I don't want just my sins to be forgiven. I want to walk in health. I want to walk in abundance. I want to walk in God's perfect will. I want the peace of God to rule and reign in my life. I want to enjoy life on a higher level, on a heavenly level. In order to do that, you've got to sell out. You've got to go all in. And a lot of people want to give it a try to see what happens. And faith doesn't work by trying. As Yoda would say, try not, do. (laughs) Faith doesn't work by trying, folks. It works only for those who are sold out. And when you sell out, the devil's going to do everything he can to make sure you're on the top level of the house. Where the air conditioner doesn't seem to have much effect. And he wants to keep you trapped in the upstairs as long as possible. But through the knowledge of God's word, who he's made us to be, we can go down a floor. We can descend a level into him where we get the benefits a lot better and a lot sooner. Now, what does selling out mean? It means you're going to have to change a lot. There's a lot of things about your thinking you're going to have to change. There's a lot of things about what you do that's going to have to change. I'm pretty well convinced that Jesus didn't die for people to be casual about his death. I'm pretty well convinced... That Jesus didn't die for our sickness so that the church could argue over whether or not it's real. Greatest decision you can ever make after making Jesus the Lord of your life is to sell out to the truth of the word. Now, I may not know everything that means to you. Or for you. But I know everything that means for me. What it really comes down to is dealing with the things God's been telling you to deal with for a long time. But there's a payoff. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith. Here's what that really means. It means that God sees when you step over into faith. 
before any natural change takes place, before any receiving of anything in a physical manner occurs, God sees you as already victorious. When Paul said we're more than conquerors through him that loved us, that's what he's saying. He's saying if we're living our lives on the truth of God's word, if we've sold out to the truth, which is the word of God, and made a a one-time decision, once and for all decision, never to turn back on, that we're going to live by the word, you're already a winner. Now, we may judge that win, that victory, by the things that we want to see in the natural realm. But as far as God's concerned, since his word can never fail, it never returns to him void. It never returns to him without results or fruit. Since that's the way God looks at it, you've already won. When we understand that and begin to thank God because we've already won, before we see any evidence or physical change in our life circumstances, when we accept things like that and rejoice because of that truth, the devil is sunk. He'll give up on you just like he gave up on Jesus. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, the Bible says that Jesus answered with the word, which was the foundation for everything he did and said and lived by. And after he answered the devil with the word on those three instances that the Bible gives us record of, it says the devil left him for a season. That has to mean the devil saw there's no way to beat this guy. I can't beat him from within. Now, he certainly turned up the heat on the circumstances in life, but that didn't stop Jesus either. I believe that's a picture of the heavenly life, the quality of life that's available to us because we are complete in him. We are complete in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth that you've made known unto us. Lord, we thank you for eternal life, which is ours now, which we have received through faith in the Lord Jesus. But, Father, we want to go further than that. We want the quality of life where the kingdom of God truly reigns, rules and reigns in us to provide for everything Jesus paid for. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to trust in your word, to gain access to your blessings by faith. And we thank you, Father, that our faith is the victory. We're victorious now in those things that we believed you for. We're victorious now. We're more than conquerors now because of the truth of the word. And your word is the power of God unto us. Your word never returns void. It always accomplishes what you sent it to do. So as we stand upon your word and having done all to stand, prepared as necessary through the knowledge of the word to stand, we stand therefore surrounded by your word, upheld by your word, victorious over the evil one and the evil that would attack us. We love you, Father. We thank you for rejoicing over us because we are victorious. We can say, just as Jesus said, of you, 
we always do those things that please you because we always put your word first. Thank you, Father, for being on our side. Thank you for cheering us on. Thank you for encouraging us through your word. Thank you for bringing to pass everything that you said. In Jesus' precious name. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I feel impressed to talk to you for just a moment, just a few seconds, about the things that God's been dealing with you about. We know by the character and the nature of our Father, He's not in any way trying to hurt us. He's not in any way trying to take something from us. He's trying to give something to us. So whatever selling out, going all in means to you. Go all in. It may cut across some of the activities of the people that you've made associations with, some of the friends that you have. It may cut across some of the ways that you're doing now out of convenience. It may mean a change in any number of ways. But I feel impressed that the purpose of this service is to encourage you Go all in with God. Don't hold back any of yourself. Don't let there be any closets or places in your life, internally or externally, that you hold back from God. Go all in. Now, I'm certainly not going to know when you make that decision, but heaven will. Heaven will. Father, we choose to go all in with you. Give us your word and just your word. We believe. We believe. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Before we go, let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. He's been so good to us. And even things or areas or circumstances in our life that don't look like they're the way we want them to be or that the Bible says they should be, He's on our side to bring that to pass. We love you, Father. We love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the victory, which is our faith. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Say it with me. The Lord is good. good. And his mercy endures forever. Now say this. My faith faith in God's word word is my victory. victory. Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight if you can.